welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. We're joined again by myself, Callum Roper. We have Callum Watts with us. Good afternoon. Ollie Walwyn. Hello there, everyone. And Bradley Alsop. Hi, folks. Now, we took a week off uh, owing to our own calendars being rather busy as we're getting back to normality or whatever that may be. But over the last two weeks or so, we've certainly had what we were describing before recording as some quite juicy stories. Um, So we're going to kick off with COVID, which seems to be ever present in our podcast and in the news. And obviously, uh, many of us have heard that we are fearing a second spike. And it appears that second spike is currently materialising. The press has been reporting a number of figures over the last few days about the rising number of cases across the country, uh, with a number of experts predicting a 1.7 R rate across the country as an average. So obviously we've seen local lockdowns implemented. We've seen a number of measures to slow the spread of COVID. And I'm assuming the government was trying to stop it full stop, but then we've seen shops opening up again. We've seen uh, people gathering in groups that they shouldn't be gathering in. We've seen a number of people taking the mickey with the rules. And now uh, the government is starting to backtrack on opening up the economy as they've been describing it. So as of tomorrow, the 14th of September, the new rules in place are that six people can gather indoors or outdoors. Uh, No more can gather than that. They'll face a quite a hefty fine, as I understand it, uh, for which um, is, is going to put people off. We understand that before that, it was really more of a guideline. So a lot of people were, they were saying, taking the mickey. So I suppose that really leads um, to the question is, uh, Callum, has, has this really been too late, introducing the rule of six with such strenuous um, reinforcement from the law? I think that... Uh, it... I mean, certainly we know that the big headline policy to uh, eat out to help out was absolutely insane. I think that's what it will look like in retrospect. Um, I have believed, as many people have have said, um, that really we should have just kept everyone in the hospitality sector on furlough or even started to, to look at ways to employ people productively in other sectors. Obviously, we've got plenty of other areas of the economy. Um, that we do need uh, do need work in, we need to be building houses and so on. We could have started retraining people for those purposes. Um, but instead, uh, I think the government has been so set on the idea of uh, trying to maintain the economy as it is. Uh, and also, they're very much in the pocket of, of landlords as well, who, of course, are the landlords of all of those restaurants and bars and nightclubs and offices and so on. Um, you know, they want people to go uh, go out and uh, eat out to help out the wealthy capitalists by putting themselves at risk. We've been saying this for months, you know, ad nauseum and so on. Um, and so no one should be really surprised to hear that second wave is coming. Um, I think most people thought it would come in sort of mid to late September. And hey, look, it's mid-September. Uh, and suddenly the government is starting to look at reintroducing lockdown measures because it has to. Um, we can't be, it can't, even this government, which has so much contempt for public opinion, um, that, you know, they wouldn't even allow 
some of the that they won't allow any ministers to resign for any reason or even their chief um, strategic advisor. Uh, Dominic Cummings, when he blatantly um, breaks the law uh, and breaks the lockdown rules, um, they even when they will protect him, um, even even after all of that, they probably couldn't survive the same sort of death toll that they allowed to happen earlier this year through their own incompetence. Um, so we can see it's mid-September. It's quite a warm day today, to be fair, but we have had a few cold days. The temperature's dropping. That's fertile ground for uh, the virus to begin spreading again as the weather gets colder um, and therefore the risks will increase. So these measures have been introduced, this new rule of six, which is entirely arbitrary. It could have been five, seven, eight. It doesn't really matter. Ultimately, in a few weeks' time, we're probably going to have to go into another lockdown again. Um, and it is all because uh, this government wanted to open up the economy again. And the sinister thing is that they must have known that this is what was going to happen. The whole way along, they've had very talented scientists advising them, uh, both officially and unofficially, um, that all of this would happen. Um, as we keep saying as well, places like New Zealand are doing fine because they went for a zero COVID strategy. They wanted to try and eliminate the virus, which is what you should do when you're facing a plague uh, this government has decided, along with so, uh, many other capitalist governments, to just try and manage it. Um, and this is the inevitable outcome. Um, so we absolutely shouldn't be surprised that that's where, that that's where we are, um, because that's what the science uh, is, is telling us. Absolutely. And I suppose, uh, as, as you mentioned about this second lockdown coming in, potentially in the next few weeks or so, it seems to me almost inevitable that that will be coming. It seems to me that we're on the road to a, another lockdown. There's, there's sort of talk of, um, I know Johnson was talking about it all being over by Christmas. We've all heard that rhetoric. That's a historic thing. But actually, it seems like we might see a, a peak of uh, around Christmas and potentially people not being able to see their families at Christmas, which is incredibly unfortunate. But if it's necessary to stop the spread of COVID, then so be it. Um, Bradley, uh, over the last week or two, you've been um, quite vocal about the scapegoat that the government is currently using to blame for uh, th this rising COVID cases. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's bread and butter approach by, by the Tory government, isn't it? And, it? and it's exactly what we've seen over the last 10 years. Um, I'm, I'm going to say it, it, it's a neoliberal approach to, to public policy, isn't it? It is blaming the individuals um, for what's happening rather than looking at the systemic or, 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 or you know, the, the failures of the government. Um, you know, this, this idea that young people, uh, uh, essentially this is what we're being told to swallow. We're being told that, that young people, you know, for, from late teens um, through, through their 20s um, are not really taking the virus very seriously. Um, now, now the official lockdown is over, um, and they're able to get back to some sort of normality. Uh, you know, they're they're taking that to a ridiculous length. They're out. They're all out partying every weekend. Uh, they're not. They're not obeying social distancing. They're, they're not obeying household rules. Uh, they're not wearing masks. All this. All this stuff. It's utter rubbish. Um, from my perspective, and I, I know it's anecdotal, but actually, I, I think younger people are more likely to take this seriously than older people. Um, out of the people I know that that might subscribe to, to some mild variant of, of a conspiracy theory around COVID or 
uh, or a, a more of the let's go with the herd immunity sort of strategy and, and who care who gives a fig who else dies um, before we get to that point uh, out of those people i know that endorse those views they are overwhelmingly older white men and um, i i cannot think of a single instance where i know uh, i know a young person personally you know someone around my age that is, that is not taking covid seriously and has not endorsed um me- measures to prevent it and I, obviously there are some out there, there there must be but the idea that young people on the whole are less likely to be taking this seriously than older people i i just don't see the evidence for that it, it doesn't charm my experience at all um, and of course there's lots of reasons why because obviously cases are going up amongst young people predominantly the, the data does show that but there's lots of reasons um, that that we know, you know, we know things are happening and what and why that might result in that before we start assuming that young people are, are all going out partying without masks and without social distancing. First of all, um, younger people are more likely to be um, in, in precarious employment, so so they're um, less likely to have the luxury of being able to work from home, um, and and you know if their boss is asking or telling them to to come back into work, they're less likely to be in a position where where they can resist that. To, to some degree. Secondly, they're more likely to be in industries that, that require them to be in, or, or maybe have even been in throughout the whole pandemic. So, you know, uh, the hospitality industry, fast food, um, you know, w- working on the shop floor, young people are much more likely to be in those positions. So, in, in essence, what we've got is a government that is telling people it's their civic duty to go back to work. You know, we're, we're almost being criticised for, for working from home now. Um, so, you know, young people uh, have done that, maybe responding to, to what the government's saying, maybe responding to pressure from their bosses. They've gone into work, uh, they've done what they've been told is their civic duty. Yeah, so we can prop up all these pressure managers in, in, in the middle of, um, you know, in the, in the middle of the major metropolitan areas. Uh, and, and now that is quite, you know, quite obviously that's going to lead to a rise in cases. Everyone was saying that as soon as the government were coming out of those statements. Now that's happened. Suddenly, it's the fault of young people. Suddenly, young people are being irresponsible, and it, and you know the advice from the government, the, the condemnation from ministers that appear on TV about people being too lazy to go back into the office. All of that's forgotten, and and it's the fault of individuals being selfish or 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 not or not obeying social distancing rules. Um, frankly, it, it's it's disgusting. I think um, for for this government to try and avoid responsibility to the degree they have throughout the pandemic. Um, and I think it's only going to get worse as, as the as the cases mount up and, and as the weeks go on. Um, it's clearly a government that's got no handle on the situation whatsoever, um, has failed to tackle this virus and is now seeking any scapegoat it can get to, to distract away from its failures. Yeah, Callum, you just wanted to come in. I was going to say, it reminds me a bit of the, uh, during the last Labour governments where the uh, Tory press basically spent a decade building up resentment against um, people on benefits mainly um, by finding isolated, very egregious examples of people who had, uh, who were either committing fraud or had some uh, arbitrary excessive number uh, number of children um, and had flat screen TVs and, and all those sorts of things. Um, they seem to be trying to attempt the same trick by uh, placing the blame for the uh, second spike on young people in the way that Bradley has described, because they will find the odd example of a, a group of kids probably who have decided to have a house party, and then that will be used uh, to try and tar every everyone else. Um, and I, I understand why people 
I want to, to want to go out and, and party and things like that. But you can see this insidious media trick of twisting things when in fact, actually most people in general, by the way, not just young people are actually uh, self-isolating. I don't know. I, I've may, maybe seen a couple of parties, you know, it, I've got over a thousand friends on Facebook. I've maybe seen a couple of parties in, in the last few months, most people. Uh, are staying at home and haven't seen their friends since the beginning of the pandemic. So I think it's complete nonsense. We need to be aware of these um, deliberate media strategies that are meant to deceive us. Absolutely. And it's we've got to remember that we're talking about scapegoats and people being blamed for this. But we've got to remember, we remember the PPE scandal earlier in the pandemic. It's just come out recently, uh, I think even just today, um, that a number of tests aren't being heard, um, sorry, aren't being, um, aren't being actually tested in time. So they, the, the sample itself can't get back uh, with, a, with a proper result. Um, and we're actually having to send off a number of tests to other European countries because we aren't, um, we aren't, we don't have the, the capacity, this world beating capacity is not there. So where is the accountability for the ministers, where is the accountability for the government when it seems to be that the ordinary young person or indeed anyone else just trying to get a, get about their life just gets constantly poked with the stick telling it's their fault for hundreds of, of well, thousands of people dying in this country. And actually the, re the responsibility is with the government. Ollie, you wanted to come in? It's something we've seen a lot last week where um... The, the track and trace system, which we've been told is world beating, and, and as, as you say, people can't even get a test. The, mo the most vulnerable, vulnerable people in society aren't able to, to go 50 miles away to their closest test. It's an absolute joke. And now and our cases are on the rise again, and it's looking really scary. And we need the government to actually give us a service that works rather than just outsourcing more public money to, to dodgy contracts without due diligence. Well, when people have asked for a test, they've been actually told to go 600 miles away, which is just insane in some cases. Um, and we've been told that the, the COVID testing shortages are caused by people getting them when they're well. And we've been told that uh, it's because of young people that cases are on the rise. And they've repeatedly overstated their, their capacity, which uh, last week we were told, which is uh, 300,000, I believe, Boris Johnson said at one point. And it's just, it's just meaningless when they can't even do any more than 175,000 which we've heard a lot about, and um, just just completely bending the the meaning of words, and it's just infuriating seeing seeing Matt Hancock swinging around saying that they're they're facing a strategic problem when when actually they're lacking the basics. Yeah, and that and and that's the thing is is it just the, the levels of incompetence that we're seeing. Um, I can't remember who said it earlier, but the fact that, that no ministers have resigned for any of the scandals that we've seen. It's outrageous. It really is, and that's not to mention all the other cock-ups we've seen in in terms of the uh, A levels, in terms of the GCSEs and the B techs. There's so much going wrong, and yet there's no accountability for the government because it's in in some cases it's painted as being uh, almost counterproductive to see problems and want to solve them and point out that there's a flaw in government strategy. Bradley. Yeah, I, I think I think the question of whether we're going to go into another lockdown or not, because I, I think Callum, you know, said, said it was it was basically inevitable. 
I don't know if it is. I, I think the government's going to do everything they can to avoid a, a national lockdown. Um, I, I think what we'll see, is, like we are, you know, Birmingham being the latest example, I think we'll see um, dif- differing levels of lockdown across different local areas, um, which in fairness, you know, there, there is some science to it. In theory, if you have an efficient track and trace system, which we don't, but if you had a really good efficient uh, track and trace system in place, then and you had a manageable number of cases, um, then then the, the local sort of lockdowns approach w- would work, you know, and, and there would be some reason behind that. I, th- I don't think it necessarily will work because um, we, we don't have an efficient track and trace system in place. I, does anyone really have any confidence that the government really accurately knows where cases are rising and where they're not? I certainly don't. Um, but but I, I think the government does. And I, I don't think they're going to go for a national lockdown unless there's absolutely no other way that they can try and spin it to people. I think that and particularly with the closer we get to Christmas, I think they're going to avoid a national lockdown um, at all costs. And I can I can understand that completely. But the issue is, is when you then look at the um, rising number of cases in London, for example, you cannot implement a local lockdown on a borough by borough basis nor can you implement a lockdown, say, within the M25 or the boundaries of Greater London. It's impractical without having a national or, or even, I would call it a regional lockdown. You would have to look at the southeast instead of simply doing it borough by borough because it's impossible, because it's so integrated. It's impossible. It, I, I would say that um, really with the government obviously trying to avoid... Um, shutting businesses down again, um, the government trying to avoid upsetting their chums is, 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 is trademark conservative policy. Um, was it the St. Ledger's races yesterday as well? We saw them going ahead, uh, a bit like how Goodwood was one of the trial events when we were looking at getting crowds back into, uh, into sports. So we've got to remember that the interests for them is not necessarily wholly about public health. They seem to be more worried about the economy, um, more worried about their own position as well in the government. They're more worried about the polls and looking good as opposed to numbers of people that are dying and the numbers of people that are also being scarred by this. The, the, the long-term health impact of COVID is still being investigated, but we have to remember there is a number of people that have caught COVID and are still feeling the impact of that, whether it be respiratory, whether it be in terms of inflammation on the brain, and the impacts of that going forward is yet to be understood. And we still don't appreciate that, um, exactly the impact that that could have on people going forward. So, Ollie, you wanted to come in? Yeah, just just the point about um, the the way that they're polling and and it, whether these tactics of, uh, of subverting the blame actually work. I mean, I mean, the Tory government have just spent the last month bribing people to, to go out to, to restaurants and they're forcing kids to go back to schools, teachers and kids. They're, they're getting, uh, sorry, they're, they're busy pushing the, the back to the office kind of propaganda. And then in, in a poll recently of the two, who do you think uh, most is, sorry, um, who do you think, who do you blame the most for the recent arriving cases? And the, the, the public have said that Sixty-three uh, percent, sorry, of, of the public have said, sorry, in the poll, thirty-one um, percent think the government is is to blame in the most recent rise of cases, and sixty-three percent think the blame is on the public and probably on young people. So we know that these tactics work. Yeah, 
yeah and that, and that's the thing is that um it's it's been spread in the press and on social media and by a number of high-ranking figures that it is the public to blame apparently the public are only doing what they're told especially people we spoke about earlier people in precarious employment situations where there might not be necessarily a, a big union presence in their workplace they've been demanded to get back to work as soon as possible or face the sack and that you know that that cannot happen because they they shouldn't actually be doing that as, as we've spoken about before on, on the 1201 so it's government policy that is somehow managing managing to shrug off and deflect any blame whatsoever for government policy but as we say, we've, we've been speaking about the media and scapegoats, which brings us on to our next topic today. Uh, as, as some of us may have, may have seen, Extinction Rebellion have held another protest. They've recently gone fairly quiet. We saw the banners on bridges around Lincoln uh, in the last couple of weeks, but now this is their first sort of national campaign where they've had a real impact that's really caught the headlines. Um, they set up a, a scaffolding and, and a roadblock outside uh, some of the printing presses for the Murdoch Empire, uh, stopping a number of these big uh, newspapers getting out. A number of people uh, complaining that they couldn't get their son on Sunday, uh, complaining that they couldn't get their uh, their, their daily broadsheet. Um, so there uh, there's a lot of outrage at this, but the question is really around this is whether we have a truly free press because Extinction Rebellion uh, have claimed, and I think most of us, or if not all of us would agree, that a free press in this country is very much a press that's free to report what it wants, but that press is owned by a very small handful of people. And that's the real debate we need to be having. Callum, you wanted to come in? I was just going to say it's quite nice. Uh, after a few weeks ago where uh, Extinction Rebellion denies vehemently that there were a socialist movement. Uh, it's quite nice to see that um, at least some people in Extinction Rebellion are sort of getting it um, with when it comes to uh, taking on the media, at least. Uh, their express purpose, I've been trying to find the exact statement, but they um, basically said it like it was, that the uh, Murdoch press is basically you know poisoning the minds of the population spreading lies um about in uh in defense effectively of the fossil fuel industry um and it's that which is uh, killing our planet so i was quite impressed to see them taking uh, action on that i think there's been less of a response from the media because i think that they've now now this now extinction rebellion is less of a novelty um, I think that they are they have moved to a position of trying to ignore them. Um, so we will see probably less of Extinction Rebellion appearing in the media, but all all power to them. They're actually doing an excellent job, and uh, I think we should support them. Absolutely. And uh, it, it, it comes back to, I've always found it interesting that they, they claim to be beyond politics. Um, I, I'm not necessarily sure whether that's something I could agree with, but action like this is inherently political action like this as you say callum it's it's true socialism looking at the media and seeing who owns it who spreads information in this country who has control of the truth 
And who has control of what the people think is the truth? And the answer is, it's, it's, it's Murdoch and, 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 a very, and the Barclay brothers. Uh, Ollie, you put your hand up first. Yeah, I just want to, I just want to read out what uh, Boris Johnson said in a statement about this. He says uh, a free press is, a vital, is vital in holding the government to account and other powerful institutions um, on critical issues for the future of the country, including the fight against climate change. It's completely unacceptable to seek uh, to limit the public's as- access to, to news in this way. Well, this makes me really angry for a number of reasons because uh, he has no interest in, uh, in, a, in a free press, a truly free press, actually holding the government to account. Um, in fact, that's the exact opposite of what he wants. Um, I think that we, we really don't have a free press in this country. And it, what he's saying is correct, because it, it is vital in, in the functioning of democracy. Like the, these critiques um, of, of the action by Extinction Rebellion are, are completely detached from who actually owns the press. They're just hollow appeals at, at the freedom of the press. And it, it's really kind of saddening to see. Um, the government's considering changing Extinction Rebellion's rebellion's status to a terrorist organization well that's just absurd they, they have the right to protest to take direct action that's the fundamental right but i think what they're doing in the way they're framing this is is completely working because they've they pissed off all the right people um they've they managed to to get the debate not about i mean obviously everyone's condemning their actions and most of the country probably disagree with them that's what the surveys have shown but they're actually, um, they are shifting the debate and they're, they're taking these things into question. I think that's great. But what was the same treatment from, uh, sorry, so there was, uh, there was far-right protesters in, in Dover, um, I think the weekend before last, and there was just nothing reported on it at all. Um, so so where's, the, where's the same kind of treatment in protests? I just don't understand. Bradley. Yeah, I, I think I'll spot on. You know, we don't have a free press in this country. It's just not true. Only in a in a very narrow liberal democratic sense, in a, in a capitalist liberal democratic sense, can you describe our press as free? And and that, you know, and that and that goes for democracy in general in this country. We, we can really call ourselves a democratic country in a very limited, you know, set of liberal institutions sort of way. You know, we have the right to vote. We, we have the right to free speech. That sort of thing. Um, but those are very limited. Uh, that's a very limited amount of, of society that's actually under democratic control. The vast majority of what happens day to day in people's lives is controlled by corporations or, or smaller businesses. They are completely devoid of, of any form of democratic organising whatsoever. And and most you know huge sums of, of the resources that we have at our disposal are owned in, in the hands of a, of a small number of private individuals. There's there's no way you can really, in, in a true sense of the word, describe that as democratic. And obviously, that that's then is is emulated in, in how our press ownership works in this country. Um, and, and the problem with Extinction Rebellion, try, trying to be, I'm, I'm probably going to be slightly more critical of Extinction Rebellion than others um, have been so far, which is ironic because I, I have been a, 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 you know, I've been involved in Extinction Rebellion locally as well. But I, I think the problem with Extinction Rebellion, trying to tell you this sort of beyond politics, right? I understand why they're doing it because people are fed up. Of, people do distrust politics. They distrust politicians. Um, and, and and there is a sort of post-materialist sort of oh all these isms haven't got us anywhere, that, you know that sort of thing. So so I, I get where they're coming from and I, I understand that that train of thought. But it you can't be serious about tackling climate change and and also claim to be beyond politics because because fundamentally climate change is caused by the way we structure our society and our economies and our politics. And and to to have some to have something to say about that that's useful, you you have to be political. There's no way around it. 
And Extinction Rebellion aren't really beyond politics. A lot of the things they say are political. Wanting to do something about climate change is a political position to hold. Um, so I, I think part of this problem is, is that, you, you know, you, you need to understand that society is not a democratic society. Press ownership is not free press. Um, and, and to really do something about that and therefore tackle climate change, Extinction Rebellion need to sort of come down on one side of the fence or another, I think. Um, and, and that's the frustrating thing. I, I think the other frustrating thing is, is their approach? Um, I, I am a bit more sceptical of how good a protest this was and, and, and how useful I think it was. Um, I, I think their, their, I mean, their, their textbook sort of approach is let's cause enough trouble to, to force you know, rich and powerful um, and governments to, to do things and, and to tackle climate change. I've always been sceptical of that approach. I think in the first round, you know, they, they do these waves of rebellions. I think this is the third one we're in now. When they did their first wave, I think it was very good, but, but not because it forced government to do anything. It was very good because it raised public awareness about the issues. And, and I think it genuinely did change the conversation about climate change in this country. Um, and I, I think it was very good and a, a really a good bit of activism that Extinction Rebellion did in their first rebellion. They did it again and, you know, it, it got a bit more conversation going, a bit more press attention, but, but it wasn't anywhere on the scale of, of, of the first time. And, 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 you know, now we're here again a third time. How much longer is this sort of set of tactics of let's try and disrupt the economy and raise awareness? How, how much longer is that going to work for them? Like we've already said in this podcast, they're getting less and less press attention each time. Um, and, and ultimately, they're, they're never, you know, this idea of shutting down central London for, for, for a few days at a time. Yes, that's annoying for the government. Yes, that will cause some damage to the economy. But it, it's peanuts compared to what the, it will do to the interests of the rich and powerful to actually genuinely engage with climate change. Obviously, it's a net benefit to society, a massive net benefit if we invest all this money now, but it's not a net benefit for the rich. The rich are going to lose an awful lot of money and an awful lot of resources and an awful lot of power if we're going to put in place the things that will genuinely deal with climate change. So I don't think any amount of mass protest that, that whose aim is to cause economic damage, I, I don't think that's ever really going to force the government to, to genuinely tackle this issue. Um, I, I think what it would require is sort of you know general strikes on the, on the level of the 1920s, that, that sort of thing, um, if, if we're talking about mass disruption. But of course, that means organising within trade unions and, and taking a side within the political debate. Callum? I think something that has to be acknowledged, and I'm not, I don't know what the next stage is for direct action in this country. I'm not, you know, as I think I've explained before, I'm not... Uh, um, I'm not from a direct action background, um, but something I think from a more abstracted um, standpoint, I suppose, clearly needs to change because in part, so that's something I want to highlight is that the discourse on peaceful protests in this country has changed alarmingly, I would say, mostly in the last couple of years, but also over the course of a decade. Now, I was watching um, a, a couple of weeks ago um, I can't remember why or how this came up, but um, I saw a clip of Peter Mandelson, if you remember him. Um, he was uh, he had some green goo thrown over him by protest. This would have been something like 2008. And um, that could have been something toxic. You know, it could have been it could have been acid. It could have been poisonous. In the end, as I say, it was just basically some some flavor, uh, some uh, green dyed liquid. Um, he came he came out again and said, well, you know, I've I've cleaned myself up. You know, I'm going to get on with 
uh, what I'm doing, but you know what, I respect her right to process to do that to me and so on. The lady wasn't even arrested. Um, now you've got the you know, Prime Minister and the mainstream press saying that these peaceful protesters are instigating an attack on the freedom of the press, an attack on our on our liberal democracy. So the the discourse has shifted from saying that uh, okay, protesters might be annoying, but at the end of the day, it's their rights to protest. It's a fundamental part of our uh, of our liberal democracy and how it works. Uh, all the way to Julia Hartley Brewer saying that um, they shouldn't be doing anything except voting um, and to take any direct action at all is, is subverting uh, our uh, our political order, basically, which is obviously the intention, um, but, but uh, painting it as something as something dangerous and something creating the uh, the tone or the uh, the argument set, setting the foundation for the argument that it is something that can be suppressed, that it's almost criminal or actually criminal in the eyes of these people. Um, and so that's the next stage, I suspect, from the perspective of the state and from the mainstream media, that these protesters will be increasingly be labelled as being off out, outside the pale, uh, possibly labelled as being outlaws increasingly, um, and so I think that people who are engaging in direct action need to be aware of that and adjust their tactics accordingly. How exactly that works, uh, I'm not sure, but clearly something needs to be done because we are going down an authoritarian route in the West in general, but especially in the United States and in this country. Um, and we need to be uh, prepared for what happens next. Absolutely. It, it, it's incredibly concerning. As, as somebody that strongly believes in the right to protest, somebody that's attended protests in, in the past, it's it's so worrying. It really is. You only, as, as you mentioned, the US, you only have to look at the, uh, the federal government response to the Black Lives Matter protests to see that, and indeed in France with Macron's approach to the yellow vests, you can see that there is an increasing change in the dialogue around protests that in some case it's a case of you can't protest like this because the real protest should be at the ballot box and that's a classic argument we've been told before and i think a number of people including the likes of julie hartley brewer have said that over the last few days that the real protest is at the ballot box that would be great if the ballot box was a fair representation of the country if it wasn't a first past the post system if it was actually proportional to what people actually wanted and what people were demanding. But if, if I'm honest with you, that, that system, as, as we know, that has a real flaw when we, when we say that the electoral system itself is broken at times. People cannot seem to get what they want because the system wouldn't allow it. So when we have protests, it's a way not instead of voting, but it's a way on top of voting for people to express their opinions for people to turn around and say, I'm not happy with this. I'm not happy with how this country is being run. I'm not happy with climate change. I'm not happy with racism. And people have a right to protest and people have a right to stand up. And, and you're, in, you're completely right that it is incredibly worrying what we're, what we're faced with. But moving on from that, really speaking about the ballot box, we all remember 
2019 and the general election and the uh, the rhetoric uh, that Boris was given us about the oven ready deal, about how it was perfect and we could do whatever we wanted with this with this withdrawal agreement. Well, that's since reared its ugly head. We've had some. Uh, well, we've had the EU's own lawyers have been drawing up some papers uh, and, and looking at maybe exploring putting sanctions against the UK in the next few uh, weeks or months, depending when this legislation is passed. And the legislation I'm speaking of is plans from Her Majesty's government to uh, effectively breach the withdrawal agreement. Um, so to look at the technicalities of this, it's to do with stake aid at stake aid state aid uh, where companies uh, can get supported by the UK government and certainly at the moment we're talking about subsidies and looking after companies um, but the current agreement says that that state aid can only be applied to all of the nations apart from Northern Ireland because of the uh, unique uh, situation with the border there the fact that it shares a economic and land border with the European Union that is, as we're led to believe, is going to be left open. So the EU has then said, well, actually, you can't be supporting your big companies. You can't be supporting industry in the UK with subsidies because the nature of the union in itself means that you, you're, you're, you can prop up a business that can quite easily operate in Northern Ireland then therefore operate in the European zone, in the European sphere of influence. So this is this has really come to a loggerheads. But my take on it is this, is that it's once again, as I'm saying, it's more Boris style bluster. It's more looking for a fight, looking for conflict, because that's where his support base is. That's why I started speaking about the 2019 general election, because that is what they did very well. They set up the battle and they were playing it out and they were simulating it and they knew that people were very passionate about this and they're very passionate about European Union bashing or being seen that the European Union is the tyrant trying to um, impose sanctions against us for breaking the rules. But I, I, I just wonder what your take on that is, Oli. Um, I mean, for for Brandon Lewis last week, the, the Northern Ireland Secretary, to, to stand up and say that the, the government's internal market bill, which they agreed to nine months before, uh, and they won an election on and fought that election, would be breaking international law. I mean, it's just, it's just, it was just ridiculous. Um, Boris, Boris has tried to kind of frame this in a way that makes it look like the EU... Um, in, in the bill, the clauses in the bill were necessary to to prevent um, a foreign power, the EU, from breaking up our country. I think that's just ridiculous. That's been it's been dismissed by the EU as utter bollocks, and it, it really is. The thing, the thing about this really is uh, the the reason that international law is there to draw up some is to draw up some boundaries between between you know international countries. How then, if we break international law with this with this uh, this bill? Can we condemn such countries as Saudi Arabia, China, North Korea for some of their foreign policies? It's just, I, d I don't understand. I just, it's beyond belief, really. Absolutely. And uh, it, it seems to me that, that you're completely right, that it is basically just looking to 
paint the government in the light as the savior of the union, as a, as being a strong government. Specifically, at the moment, we, we we see a weak government, a government that's probably got countless ministers now that should have resigned and haven't. Um, and and we're in another situation where potentially we could be calling for the head of, of, of Brandon Lewis here because it's you cannot just go out and breach or um, make announcements that you're going to breach international treaties and therefore international law. It, it doesn't work like that. And, and, and also morally, it's just in bad faith to negotiate one thing and then immediately decide to break it within the year. Callum. I, I mean, I don't see that there's much value in going after any uh, particular minister because we know that they won't resign. I think that these people will only go down together um, at the end of the day. Um, but they have made themselves, like Brad and Lewis, made both himself and the government look absolutely ridiculous when he was talking in, in the House of Commons. I mean, he said, yes, we are going to break international law, but in a very specific and limited way. I mean, it's a bit like saying, um, look, I, here's my gun, uh, hand over your wallet, but I'm going to be very specific and limited, and I'm going to leave you your wristwatch. You know, it's you can't pick and choose. A crime is a crime, isn't it? And that's what it would be if it's domestic, and it's the same if it's international. Yes, in on completely theoretically, the UK can get away with breaking international law, but then it's also saying... We're going to go around the world and make our own trade deals. But who on earth is going to want to deal with someone who doesn't comply with the deals that they've already signed? It's absolutely, It doesn't make sense at all. The uh, Attorney General was uh, berated effectively um, uh, by, by the uh, Bar Council, I think, yesterday morning uh, for effectively saying that. That's, the, um, uh, that's one of the highest uh, legal bodies in the country. Um, they are being ridiculed by their own, by by the rest of the establishment. The the, the Tory rebellion, apparently amongst MPs, we'll see um, how it plays out. I think they start the the first votes on it are happening uh, tomorrow afternoon. Um, but there's a huge number of, of Tory MPs who are who are unhappy about it. Um, but simply for that purpose, even the most sincere Brexiteers can surely see how bad this would look for anyone you're looking to uh, trade with. I mean, how is the United States? And we are, I believe, on the road effectively to becoming a, a vassal state of the United States because we need to be part of some sort of uh, economic alliance. And if it's not Europe, it will probably be the United States. But how is the United States, you know, going to trust the UK uh, not to renege on its deals um, if it is just going to pass unilateral legislation and decrees uh, which undermine the agreements that they have already agreed. And it sounds, and it does actually have the prospect of cutting through this particular issue, although it's kind of dry on the, on, on the surface, all of these laws and regulations and disapplying certain regulations and so on. But breaking a law, people do understand that. And I think that is... Uh, that's something that needs to be repeated and repeated and repeated because it's also dangerous as well because of the threats to the uh, Good Friday Agreement. I think Bradley will probably know more about the implications for that than I, having lived in Ireland for some for some time and been an activist there. Um, but, you know, it's a threat to peace there. It's a free threat to peace in this country, potentially. 
Um, it's absolutely insane that a conservative government or a government that calls itself conservative and unionist is doing, it seems, everything it can to break the steady stability uh, of this uh, country and to break up the union itself. Bradley. I mean, yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, to have a government minister stand up in in the chamber and essentially say, "Yeah, we're, we're going to." I think was it uh, the phrase was in a, in a limited and specific way break international law. I think in a limited and specific way. Um, but you know, it's extraordinary to have a, a government minister stand up and, and say that in the chamber that, 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 to essentially admit that the government's going to be breaking international law. I think the problem is, I, I, I'm probably going to disagree with Callum a little bit here. I don't think it has the potential to break through. The people that put Boris Johnson in, in power, the, the people that voted for the Conservative Party, do we really think they care about international law? You know, the people that voted Leave and the people that wanted Brexit, they're not going to care about international law. Part of the problem was that we were subject to international law in the first place. They wanted national sovereignty back. They wanted to do what they want. I, I, so I, I think this idea that, you know, that lots of liberals and, and, and a number of people on the left uh, are up in arms about this. And it, and it is wrong, obviously. You know, it is outrageous what, what's being done. But I, I don't, I don't think it's going to matter. I, I don't think it's going to. I don't think any Brexiteers are going to be bothered about it. I don't think many Tory voters are going to be bothered about it. Um, the, the whole debate we've had in this country for the last five years is, is, is that they, they want to get away from this stuff. They, they, they want Britain to be able to do whatever Britain wants to do. Um, so I think the idea that the, the Tory government are breaking international law to do what they think they need to do, probably a lot of voters that vote for them will think, good on them, why not? So I, 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 don't, I don't think it's going to break through in, in that way. And I, I, don't, I think for Labour, strategically, um, you know, Keir has been quite quiet about it. And, and there's, a, there's a whole conversation I suppose to be had about what our Brexit position is now and, and, and what we do about that. Um, but I, I think the Labour Party has tried to sort of be a bit quiet about Brexit in the last couple of weeks. And, and, and you can sort of understand why. Yeah. And I, I suppose that that's a great point to be making is that they, the the whole fan base of, of Boris Johnson and this conservative right-wing government is all about taking back control. So any, any well, disrespect shown to EU laws or treaties that keep us uh, in, in, in line, albeit from outside the EU, but in, in some sort of alignment, that, that, that can only be seen as a positive from the perspective of somebody uh, it's from somebody from that thinking. So if you voted for Brexit, if you are very much a no deal sort of person, you want to see us default onto WTO rules, then go for it, you know, Boris, go for it. You, you're going to make Britain proud by breaking international law. But the implications for this there isn't just in Northern Ireland and, 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 the, uh, and the British Isles. It also goes onto things like the WTO and trade deals we want to strike in the future. Because if we can't be trusted to follow the rules in one trade agreement with one of our closest uh, partners in the world and our biggest economic um, exporter to, how can we expect some of these smaller deals, these niche deals that we're always being painted to be signing, to even be signed? Because there's no trust. We're undermining our position as a trusted, well, a sem at least semi-trusted and respectable power on the world stage 
that is at least going to stick to treaties and agreements that it has signed. Callum. Well, we can't. Uh, and I think this is the point. I, I mean, I take uh, Bradley's point um, about it maybe uh, having less of an impact on the public at large, at least for now. Um, however, I think the reason why you're seeing so many Tory politicians in particular uh, getting nervous about what the government is doing um, is because these are people who, although they bang on so much about, you know, empire and, and Britain being a great power and so on, I think we know the reality is that these people, you know, they're taking nice trips to the United States, they're taking trips to Japan, they're taking trips to China, they're taking trips to Brazil, India, all of these emerging economies. Um, why? Because they're looking forward to the point where those other investors from across the world can come and invest in Britain, i.e., you know, set up companies here. And um, they will obviously want to uh, court politicians like them uh, in order to gain favour, because that's what this uh, that is. When you have left an economic block like the European Union, which is a strong economic entity in its own right that can set its own rules. If you're going to break away from that, you become a small country, which is effectively at the mercy of those larger economies. That's what Brexit actually means, economically speaking. But these people don't care about that because they are the equivalent of the local politicians, say, in developing nations in Africa in the last century. You know, they're entirely willing to sell out uh, the people around them and their own economy and sell it to foreign investors as long as they get a nice payoff. That's what they're thinking. And the, the reason this is a threat to them is because all of a sudden this is saying, well, now that those foreign paymasters are going to be thinking, well, is, is the UK state actually going to be compliant to our wishes uh, under conservative rule? Um, because this would suggest otherwise. Um, I, I kind of understand in a way that, that the government wants more control over state aid because if they do try and go down an economic nationalist route, which I don't think they will, I don't think it's really in the Conservatives' lexicon to do that in their toolkit. Um, but they will need to prop up industry because it, it's going to collapse because it's so, at the moment, it's so dependent. Uh, on foreign investment, which is going to disappear if we get a hard Brexit. Um, so I think those are the battle lines. Um, it's very, inter very, very interesting to see Boris Johnson, the leader of the arch neoliberal party of the world. You know, remember that Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party led the world in establishing neoliberalism in this country, and America sort of followed suit. Um, he is leading that same party. And he is, seems to be personally going down a very economically nationalist route by just sort of trying to ignore international treaties and, and sticking up for state aid and so on. But that is contrary to the wishes of his own MPs um, who are looking for a very different economy, a sort of Singapore of, off, the, uh, off, the coast of, uh, off the coast of France. Um, so that, those are the battle lines which are being drawn in the Conservative government at the moment. Um, and it will be very interesting, as we often say, because it's completely out of our hands uh, to see uh, how it all uh, plays out. And I think maybe Bradley's right that maybe Labour should stay out of it, but um, we should also be condemning 
the breaches of international law because I think when the uh, shit does hit the fan, economically speaking, we will need to be able to say that we were there saying, I told you so. Absolutely. And I think that the, 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 that's actually something that's been painted is the Singapore of Europe uh, as something that we've had quite a lot during the, uh, during the Brexit campaign and the, uh, in the following months and years. Just talking a number of people of that persuasion of the neoliberal class talking about Britain becoming this Singapore. But we also have to remember that there is already overseas territories under our control that are effectively the same mechanism. So it would only be formalising it on the on mainland Britain. But anyway, with the uh, ongoing Brexit saga continuing to go on, it's quite nice that it's come back, actually. I've missed you never thought you'd say that, did you? Oh, I know, yeah. Well, you know. It's like a memory from a from a simpler time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Trade deals were so much nicer to talk about, weren't they? Yeah. So I think we'll wrap up there. We're coming near to the end of our hour. Um, so any closing remarks, anyone? Callum? I think I've said all, all, all that needs to be said. Just stay safe, everyone, and... Um, Hopefully we'll still be here uh, next time to talk to you again. Uh, Ollie, any closing remarks? Anything to note? Uh, I just think this this week will uh, continue to be a very interesting week in politics. And uh, yeah, stay safe, everyone. And uh, Mr. Walsop, anything else? Yeah, um, don't, don't have meetings of, of more than six. Um, don't, don't impede the, the work. Don't impede the workings of our excellent free press um, and don't break international law. I think that's a, uh, a message we can all agree with. Thank you very much for listening and uh, we'll see you again next time with whatever political shenanigans have come out of this Conservative government. Thank you. Thank you.